Well, if you would, would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 35? Psalm 35 is what is known as an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory is when one is invoking some sort of curse upon someone else. And so the imprecatory psalms oftentimes make us and our modern ears uncomfortable. And so how do we understand these, especially in the place of worship, for the psalms are songs that we would be singing in worship? I've often said, how do we deal with the psalms that are imprecatory psalms? Well, we sing them. We pray them because they're part of God's Word. And they're for our instruction and they're for our worship. And what we must understand is that, especially in this psalm, it comes out so clearly that those that David is going to the Lord and bringing to the Lord and calling for the Lord to do something about, it is those that specifically oppose the kingdom of God. It would be those that would be doing all they could to quench the forward progress of God's redemptive plan. And so as we look at these imprecatory psalms, we have to remember it's not that the word of the Lord here is teaching us against those that are innocent. And we know theologically there are none that are innocent. But specifically those that are targeting the righteous. And what makes this one so particularly painful to read of, of David is that he notes that they were one time his friends. He notes that they were people that he prayed for, that he spent time with, and that there was numerous types that were his friends and that he was close with that have all turned on him and are opposing him and rejoicing at his fall. And what's interesting about this is this is 28 verses, and it divides up into three different sections. The first 10 verses is a petition for salvation for himself and then for destruction of the wicked. And then from verses 11 through 18, David contrasts his actions with that of his enemies and calling for the Lord to bring justice. And then verses 19 through 28, it's a petition for deliverance. And so there's three portions of this, three imprecations that are taking place. But what is interesting for us to note, at the end of each segment, David pauses to praise the Lord and to worship the Lord for his goodness. And so it's an interesting way to, that the Lord has broken up this psalm for us and very instructive as well is that after he has prayed this imprecatory verse, he then goes into worship of God. And so let us hear this word. Psalm 35, verse 1. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord exalting in his salvation, all my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, and poor and needy from him who robs him? Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I 
When they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed down on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land. They devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. And let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant, then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. And David begins here with a petition for salvation. But not only for salvation, but it's a petition for destruction. That he would be saved from his enemies and that his enemies would be destroyed. It's a plea for the Lord to go to battle for him. You'll notice that he says these very things. Contend, O Lord. Contend with those who are contending with me. Fight against those who fight against me. This is a call to battle. Verse 2 says, take hold of shield and buckler. And the shield would be the, the small shield that you would, you would use that would be movable in battle, whereas a buckler would be a standing shield that would cover the whole entire body. And that's the picture. He's calling the Lord to take these not as, as forms of defense. Then he goes on to say, draw the spear and javelin. That is for the offense against my pursuers. But then in this picture, if this is the picture that David is asking of the Lord, Lord, would you surround me with a shield and protect me? But yet with your spear, would you wipe out my enemies? And while I I am in the cover and in the refuge of your shield and your protection. Lord, will you speak to my heart? David, you are safe. What beautiful picture. Look what he says. Say to my soul, say to me in my heart, I'm here to help you. I have got you. That would have been David's greatest comfort. And we know that the Lord doesn't need these things. These are all pictures of what the Lord brings to us in comfort. And David appeals to the Lord that he would do this, but more importantly, he appeals to the Lord that the Lord would say to his own heart, I have you. I am your salvation. I'm reminded of this very fact, and we, we, we sang of it tonight. This is picture. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. What a beautiful picture that as we are in the safekeeping of the Lord, that he speaks to our own hearts. I am your salvation. And we're reminded that friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. But the difference 
between friendship that we have with one another and the friendship with the Lord is this, is the Lord is immutable. He's not like us. He's not finicky. But He is immutable. You know, what is amazing here is as David prays this and he asks for the Lord to protect him throughout this whole entire psalm, you see his enemies are continually present, but he's unaffected by them because he is in the safekeeping of the Lord. It's specifically, say to my soul, O Lord, speak to my heart, speak in to me, I am your salvation. We need to hear the gospel in our hearts continually. And it is this. If you are in Christ, you have been made right. Reconciliation has taken place. There is no longer any condemnation because of what the Lord has done. He has secured that. He who began it, he who called you, he who knew you in eternity will complete it in you. Regardless of what takes place, that is the one truth that we need to hear in our hearts over and over is that truth. That reconciliation has happened. And if we are in Christ, we can say in our hearts, the Lord can speak into our hearts, I am your salvation. Because he has sent his son to pay the penalty for us on our behalf. And so let us pray, Lord, speak to our hearts the joy of salvation in Christ. Lord, speak to our hearts that you are our salvation and that salvation is accomplished. May that be our prayer as well. That despite what takes place in life, despite whatever we may face, Lord, speak to our hearts that in Christ our sins are absolved. And David begins there with this plea for the Lord to save him, to fight for him. And then he moves into a plea for their, not only the plans of those who are opposing him, uh, not only that their plans would be destroyed, but they themselves will be destroyed. You'll notice a word comes up over and over. In this little section, it comes up six times, and it's the word let. And it's coming out normally, let them, let them, let them, let their. And it usually goes something like this, in some way, let destruction come upon them. Let them be destroyed. Six times. He prays for that. Notice, let them be like chaff. That is, let them be blown away. Let them be destroyed. They devise against me. Let that go away. He's calling for them to be put to shame. He's calling for them, for the Lord to pursue them. He's calling for those that have tried to place him in a net for evil intentions. He says, let them fall into the very net that they put out for me. Let them be destroyed. Let them come to their own destruction. That's his prayer. But not only is that his prayer, these are the words of God for our instruction. You know, if we struggle with such a prayer like this, we have to recognize this. It's a prayer for justice. It's a prayer for justice. And how do we, how do we balance this out with the command we have from Jesus? Love your enemies, which is also a command of the Old Testament. Well, think about the context. David is praying that they won't kill him. 
David's praying that they will not succeed in their evil plots. And that's the key word. It's their evil plots against him. There are evil people in the world that oppose the righteous. It's okay that we pray that their plots fail. If you're here on a Wednesday night, we often pray that a lot of the plots that take place in this world would fail. That they will not succeed. I think we should all be praying today that evil will not prevail. In fact, the Lord Jesus teaches us what? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May wicked plots, may wicked scheming, may it fail. I think of legislation that wants to take life. May that fail. May it be destroyed. May we also pray for God's grace that they repent. But love for my enemies does not mean I approve of their wickedness. And further, one thing is is that we often miss is when Jesus taught that, you see it in Luke, he was teaching in contrast to the Pharisees that were teaching love neighbor but hate enemies. And specifically, the type of hate that they were teaching that Jesus is addressing is vengeance over love. When Leviticus 19 verse 18 forbids vengeance but specifies love. They were specifically teaching vengeance over their Roman occupiers. And so Jesus, when he says, love your enemies, is speaking against this backdrop. And when we are given the Great Commission... We're called to go to those. We're called to go to those. We have to balance out Scripture with Scripture when we read that because we oftentimes hear the love your enemies and ignore the fact that God's Word also brings imprecatory psalms with it. Now, I want you to notice verse 7 which I think is a guide to this sort of prayer, if it's in our own life. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. And the key phrase is there, without cause. In other words, David's saying, I'm innocent in this matter. Their fury on me is not justifiable. I think of Peter's words when he speaks of us living in this world, where he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evil, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's he saying? Don't actually give them any fodder for what they're going to speak against you already. Don't give them a cause to slander you. That's what he's saying. He goes on to say in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that... When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Huh. Peter actually says, may those who revile you be put to shame. The very same thing that David is praying in Psalm 35. The whole thing, though, is this. Don't give them cause for it. Now, what we have to see here is when David lists their list of sins, 
And he says, they're doing these things. David has made an accusation. And what have we learned about accusations many times over is this, is once an accusation is made, there is automatically a victim. It's the one being accused, or it's the accuser. And so either David is a victim, or they have become victims. Calvin says this on this verse, It becomes us of us carefully to mark this, so that no one may rush unadvisedly into God's presence, nor call upon Him for vengeance without the assurance and testimony of a good conscience. In other words, it's that idea, what David says, they are coming after me without a cause. But if we have given someone a cause, you just can't throw out an imprecatory psalm on them. You need to first repent. And how does David follow this? After he calls for them to be destroyed in verse 8. Well, he rejoices and praises the Lord. Look at verse 9. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exalting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. I think of this verse here, and I think of what we experience in our daily walk with the Lord. Let us never forget it is so true that the Lord's mercies to us are new every morning and we have no reason not to praise Him continually, but we have every reason to praise Him constantly. And notice how he says it, all my bones shall say. That is a a fullness of praise. But he asks this question, O Lord, who is like you? And just pause there. Who is like you? Who in our human existence can we compare and say, oh, that person's like God? We can't. We can only look to Christ. We can only look to God's revealed word to know what God is like. And what we know is this from what the word tells us, what we see in Christ, is there is none greater. Who, O Lord, is like you? There's nothing in our human existence that we can give a one-to-one correlation or even close because God is infinite. Who, who, O Lord, is like you? Well, there's none greater. There's none that are more merciful. There are none that are more gracious, that are more loving, that are more kind, that are more patient, that are more compassionate. There are none that are, are more good that are more holy, that are more powerful, that are more wise as our God. Is it any wonder that David says throughout so many of these psalms that all of who he is will praise the Lord? He says, who who is like you, Lord? And then he says this, you deliver the poor. You deliver the poor from him who is too strong for him. You take care of the poor and you take care of the needy. You protect them from the ones that take advantage of them. Who is like you, Lord? And the answer is no one. There is none greater than our Lord. And David then moves on to contrast himself with his enemies. And if we go back to this idea of without a cause, and if we questioned it, Well, he really shows us this is without a cause because we see David's actions towards his enemies. He says malicious, or that is violent witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They're they're making violent accusations against him. They're, They're false and trumped up charges that have been given against him. He's being accused of violence. And now... What was the backdrop for this psalm? Well, you just pick the event in David's life when this could have taken place. His son Absalom and all of his rulers in Judah betraying him except for a few. 
was at the time when Saul was attacking David and chasing after David and constantly maligning him. You can just pick the, the moment in David's life where he has experienced this of people making accusations against him that were not true. Has anyone ever had false accusations against them? It's painful, isn't it? This is where David's at. And this is specifically from people that he cared for. Look at how he cared for him. He says, they repay me evil for good. In other words, I did good to them, but they gave me in evil. He says he's bereft. He says my soul is bereft. That is, all of who I am is bereft. And that that word bereft is normally uh, translated childlessness. Childlessness. It's the idea of being completely abandoned. And so here's the picture. He was willing to give of himself to them, and we're going to see how he gave of himself to them on their account, where he afflicted himself for their own good, and then they abandoned him after he had given of himself to them. That's the pain he's facing here. That's a deep pain. That's a soul uh, pain that, that is sickening, if you've ever experienced it. This is how it happened. He says, but I, when they were sick, he's talking about his enemies. When they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. In other words, David afflicted his own self by depriving himself of food with fasting to pray for them. He says, I deprived myself for their sake. He goes, I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. He equates them as his own family and says, I afflicted myself to pray on their behalf because, of they, because they were sick. And they have repaid that, that I did for them, with evil. That's what David did for them. Their well-being affected his own well-being, and he did that voluntarily on their behalf. Again, as we look at this psalm, you ever given of yourself for another person only have a knife thrust into your back? David experienced that, but so did our Lord with his best friend whom he shared a meal with who hands him over to the authorities with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. The word of God does not leave us without comfort, if that's ever been experienced by you. Notice what he says of his enemies. He says, But at my stumbling they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. What causes this for David to do such good for them, but then to just turn on him like this? Well, jealousy could cause someone. David was the anointed king. Maybe it was their desire to see David fail so that they could advance. You think of in our society today how this takes place, how so often... People want someone to fail so that they can somehow look better. Our society loves this. Watch, watch those reality game shows. Seriously, watch them. Watch how the, the psychology, I'm sure some of that's played out and instructed, but what do they do? They form coalitions and they're buddies and close, but when it comes time to get rid of the other person, what do they do? They cut their throat. 
and it's embraced and loved, and people eat it up. We're infatuated with that, and that's what happens constantly. But I think this goes far deeper than that, and obviously far deeper than the shallowness of reality shows. Because this is David. And we have to focus on that, that this is David. David was promised an eternal throne that's essential to our redemption. God's plan was to pull David aside, special. And through the line of David, the son of David, one greater than David would come and offer redemption. So in effect, and this helps us put together the idea and the appropriateness of an imprecatory psalm, is to oppose David would actually to be to oppose the kingdom of God. What is this a matter of here when we see his friends? It is those that are in effect opposing the kingdom. I think in 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 many ways it would be it would be the example we see in first John in chapter two verse nineteen. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be clean, become uh, become plain that they are all not of us. That's not a matter of someone moving from one church to another church. That is those that had deserted and had come and risen, uh, risen against the church and specifically were beginning to attack the gospel message. That's why John uses such strong language to say and call those that would deny Christ the Antichrist. It's a serious matter to oppose the kingdom of God. You think of 3 John. He says in verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Listen to what he says. He says, so if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. He's maligning us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. John goes on to say, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Specifically, David is addressing not those that have personally offended him. Another brother in the Lord that offends me or annoys me or maybe in sin against me, I'm not going to pray imprecatory psalms on. I have to draw a huge distinction there. This is those that would have been with David, that would have been in support of David or had some sort of association with him that then violently opposed the kingdom of God. They are the Judases of the world. That's to whom this is directed at. This is directed at Judas, in other words. And David, he concludes this section with, again, a prayer. And he says in this, How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. He is calling for us to praise the Lord. And as he sits in the middle of the turmoil and the suffering, he is asking the Lord a very uh, relevant question that maybe you have felt in your heart or in your prayers. Lord, how long is this going to go on? And what does God's word teach us? That's okay to go to the Lord and say, how long, O Lord? Because when we say that, we're we're actually thrusting ourselves before the Lord and saying, we can't do this without you. 
You know, there's a saying that uh, is often used, uh, this cliche saying, the Lord doesn't give you any more than you can handle. That is a lie. The Lord always gives us more than what we can handle. We can't do anything apart from His grace. It's purely by His grace. There's nothing that I can handle apart from His grace, apart from His mercy. And so when He says, how long, O Lord, that is a... Very relevant prayer because it assumes that there's been a lapse time, a lapse suffering, that he's experienced it. He has not seen justice executed yet. And in his pain and in his suffering, he will still thank the Lord in the congregation. He will continue to praise the Lord. And after this praise, he goes back into another series of let them He says, don't let them rejoice over me. He's praying for deliverance. Don't let them rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let them not those who wink the eye and who hate me without cause. And again, there that is, that, that phrase, they have no reason to hate me. So we cannot give people a reason to hate us. You don't have to if you follow Christ, by the way. Jesus teaches us this. He says, for they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. And verse 20 teaches us such an important thing of the nature of those that disturb the godly and oppose the kingdom of God. Notice what it says, for they do not speak peace, but are against those who are quiet in the land. They devise words of deceit. Just Hang on that phrase for a second. Those who are quiet in the land. Isn't that something so many of us desire to have and experience? We just want to be left alone and worship the Lord and live our lives and live peaceably with all people, right? It's funny that It's phrased this way, those who are quiet in the land would be the least threat to David's enemies. But let me just tell you something that I believe is true, is the quiet in the land are the greatest threat to the enemies of the kingdom of God. Because it's the quiet in the land that are worshiping the Lord, holding true to His word, and praying to the Lord. But we look at this, and we see this one reality is that the further a group of people get from the Lord, that there are consequences for all. There are consequences for all. Our hearts ought to weep for the wickedness of the hour in our own country. We have seen the perversity of the moment. It affects us all. Where are you going to go to escape it? What little corner of the world is there that's safe and secure and is a box for you to be protected from it? Well, if you, if you find it, let me know. But you see here, so importantly, that even those that are who are off quietly living, those that oppose the kingdom will come after them as well. You see, the, the perversity of the moment affects all of us. Those that oppose the kingdom will go after all that are of the kingdom. And so, friends, let us fervently pray for an awakening. That the gospel would be received with joy. And that there would be a great turning to the Lord. And that his word would be upheld. Let us pray for that fervently in this land. Not for us, but for the glory of the Lord and his gospel.
He goes on to say, You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent, O Lord. Be not far from me. And this is in contrast to verse 21, where it says that they open their mouths against me, and they say, Aha, our eyes have seen it. And then he then says, Lord, but you actually have seen it. And so this portion of the psalm is a call that uh, is based upon God's perfect righteousness and omniscience. And he says, O oh Lord, you have seen it. What is that? That he was afflicted. That he has been persecuted. That there are people that are after him, that have maligned him that have gone and bad-mouthed him and wanted violence to do violence to him. He says, Lord, you've seen it all. Spurgeon comments on this and says, Our Heavenly Father knows all our sorrow. Omniscience is the saint's candle which never goes out. A father will not long endure to see his child abused. Shall not God avenge his own elect? And the answer is yes. What great comfort to say and know, Lord, you have seen what has taken place. You know all things. And while they see David's turmoil and rejoice, God sees their injustice, and he is going to be weighing them with it. And so David calls to the Lord, Be not far from me. May I know your presence is what he's calling for. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. And let them not rejoice over me. This is an appeal to God's righteousness, to his justice. Will the righteous judge do that which is right? Yes. And so in many ways, as we look at this psalm, David's simply asking the Lord, Lord, will you do what you're going to do anyways? But I'm being persecuted. Could you do it quickly? Can you do it now? You know, we never ask God to do something contrary to his revealed will, or at least we should not ask him to do that. But there is such great comfort in this that the Lord will act according to his righteousness. The the Heidelberg Catechism in question 52 catches this comfort. How does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? In all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and so has removed the whole curse from me. All his enemies and mine he will condemn to everlasting punishment. But me and all his chosen ones he will take along with him into the joy and the glory of heaven. That's the reality. He asked them, don't let them say in their heart, our heart's desire. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Don't let them come and have victory over me is what he's asking. He says, but rather let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Now you go back to what Peter said. May our actual godly lifestyle that is given to us by grace and the working of the Spirit in our lives be the means to shaming the enemy. And we catch that. May how we live in the midst of all that takes place and is taking place with Christians all throughout the world, may how we live be the means of shame and dishonor for them. Let them be clothed with shame 
and dishonor. And David then, once again, moves into praise where he says, Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad. He's saying, those who are for the kingdom, may we join together and praise God together in the assembly. He says, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. This is a call to praise the Lord to the faithful. This is a call for us to stand up and praise the Lord. It's a reminder for us to take up the cause of the righteous man and to rejoice with them. But there's also this wonderful promise here. As great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Did you catch that? That if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord takes great delight in you, for you are legally declared in his sight to be righteous and a saint. The Lord takes great delight in you if you are in Christ. He smiles upon you, as we like to say. He says, then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all day long. That is a continual recognition of the Lord's justice. And I just want to bring out this one point. This psalm brings, begins with this. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend against me. Fight against those who fight against me. Bring me into your shield and your buckler. Bring your spear and go after my pursuers and speak to my soul. I am the Lord of salvation. But note the calm that follows it all. Notice what it does. My tongue shall praise and tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. There's a calm that follows in that, knowing that the Lord is just, that he is righteous, and that he will always do what is right and good. And our prayer tonight is that this would be a calming reminder to us that the Lord takes great delight in his own. He takes such great delight in you that he sent his son to die in your place. We never have to question the love of the Lord when he would do that. Regardless of what we face in life, we have that promise which is far greater than anything we could experience in this world. How merciful and gracious is our God. How wonderful and freeing is the gospel. But there's nothing that can bind us here, for the Lord has broken all chains. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his victory upon the cross. And that he now reigns. And that your kingdom is absolute and encompassing of all things. We thank you for the comfort and joy that we have in knowing Christ. That your unmatchable love brings comfort to our hearts and to our souls. And how difficult it is for us to comprehend that you would take delight in us, we who are sinful, we who would turn our backs from you apart from your grace. So we praise you for your eternal electing love, calling us and setting us free from the bondage of, of sin. We praise you and we pray that your word would always be a constant calming to our soul in the midst of difficulties that we face and the turmoil we see in our world now. We pray this would be a reminder that you are sovereign over it all. And that we have great promises in Christ. And we need not fear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.